0: now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including host Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests, will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, The Mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com.
1: And now, here's your mentor. Welcome, I'm Dan Hesse, and I'll be your host today. Today's guest mentor is Manfred Crankle the successful builder of multiple businesses, including the restaurant Companil and the bakery La Brea, but he is best known as a winemaking icon. Manfred is the founder, owner, and winemaker at Cinequinon, which has redefined the term cult wine. He's an innovator with unusual wine bottle shapes, plus his own art that changes each year. According to my ChatGBT research, Sinequinon wines have appreciated more in value in the last decade than any wine in the world, including the famous French Burgundy, Domaine de la Romaine Conti. (laughs) So welcome, Manfred. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Dan. Nice to be with you. I appreciate you having me on. It's a privilege to have you as a guest mentor today. So you grew up in a small town in Austria. You grew up kind of poor, as you describe it. Uh, Even though you're an only child, you didn't have your own bedroom. Your family didn't even have your own bathroom for the first half of your childhood. And your father would occasionally go out and buy an inexpensive kind of two-liter jug of wine, which you didn't especially appreciate. But one thing that you and I had in common... Is that we were both catholic altar boys and i think we as i read uh we both committed the same venial sin which was we'd pour the wine in the cruets for the priest but occasionally we'd help ourselves to a sip when out of sight back in the sacristy and that kind of opened your eyes to wine what was it about the wine that you drank in church that put it on your radar
2: yeah that's a very good point um you know, almost everyone in Austria, I don't know the statistics, but almost everyone is Roman Catholic, as was my family and me. Uh, now, we weren't particularly religious, although we did go to church every Sunday. And, uh, and so inevitably I had to become an altar boy. So every time I had to go in the back and pour the wine for the priest to use during the mass, I drank a sip and I drank it more and more. And they actually had pretty darn nice wines. And so I thought, boy, that is very different than what I ever drank at home, because my dad bought the cheapest stuff possible in the two liter bottles. He almost didn't have labels on there. And so it really sort of, I don't know, created the whole interest in wine for me. And of course, it increased over time. And as I got older, and as I got to what's called culinary school or hotel school we called it and then I worked at hotels and in restaurants and so the whole wine interest just kept on growing and growing and growing but I do claim that the whole thing was sparked by
1: my author boy (laughs) (laughs) boy, uh, revenge (laughs) let's just say um so tell us about traveling to Canada I think it was in 1978 you weren't particularly well prepared for your career when you embarked on that journey how did how did that experience turn out
2: well you know uh i worked in different hotels around in austria the the reason was that there was the better hotels the better restaurants typically were in hotels actually and so i worked at one with a friend whose name was also manfred by the way and at some point, we said, let's get the hell out of here. I hate Austria. Everything is gray and cold and old and ancient and not hip and all this stuff. And so out of with no good reason at all, we picked Toronto. I couldn't even tell you why. But we picked it. We saved money up. And then we flew to Toronto. Now, mind you, it, we were 22 years old uh, and arrived there at these two country bumpkins with no work, no nothing. I lied to my parents. I said, everything is set up. I have a place to stay. I have a place to work. None of which was true. And so we arrived and then we thought we were loaded. We had a lot of money, which we didn't have really. And Canada was way more expensive than than Austria at home and so the money ran out fairly quickly but we and we also didn't try very hard we rented a Buick of some kind that i thought was the coolest thing ever and we drove to niagara falls and all over the place meaning we didn't really try super hard to get a job but after i don't know sometime five six weeks we realized my god it's gonna run out quickly And uh, we met a guy who was Austrian at uh, at a hotel in in Toronto called the York Hotel. It's still there, actually. So this guy said, what you should do (laughs) is go to Greece, because in Greece it's super cheap and you can make your money last. Now, I I knew nothing about Greece and didn't know how to get there. And the guy set us up with a freight boat. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. enough. I don't know if that's still so, but at the time they could take some, I can't remember, like 10 essentially passengers. You had to do some work like washing the dishes and helping in the kitchen and all this stuff. And we did that and we went to 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 Athens and we showed up there, didn't know anybody and we stayed at a youth hostel, and but loved it. Uh, and then in that youth hostel, they had a big map on the wall of Greece We literally just closed our eyes, put our finger on one and said, that's where we're going. And we went to Mykonos the next day on a ship. I was in Greece for about seven months, maybe even more, uh, just traveling around, living on nothing and and slept on roofs of buildings and all sorts of stuff like that. And then eventually I completely ran out of money and I had to go back home. And Gail was there too, my first wife. And then she came back to the United States to Los Angeles. And I, and I a few months later came as well, which was in 1980. Then uh and I thought that's the coolest thing ever. Like my God, I have a girlfriend in Los Angeles of all places, and that seems super exotic and wild and rock and roll to me. And uh and so I had somebody to hook up with and I did
1: and and I arrived here and I never, ever left. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Manfred Crankle. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com and click on list of shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse and you're listening to The Mentors Radio. And now,
0: back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back, this is Dan Hesse, and I'm with winemaking icon, Manfred Crankle. Remember, you can also listen to this show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, Google, or on your favorite podcast platform on any device at any time. So Manfred, you arrive in the US, you start working at a wine and she shop, uh, then you go work at a hotel, you work your way up to your name general manager at age 27. So you clearly have some potential. But you and some friends decide you want more, and you decide you want to start a restaurant, uh, which you, you launched called Campanile. You didn't have much money at the time; you had to sell your nice sob for, I guess, a old second hand or third hand Dodge Dart. Um, but um, and you also to make your own you know, you decide to make your own bread because there wasn't any bread around the quality that you wanted to serve in the restaurant, which became La Brea. And really to make ends meet, to make it pay for itself, you start selling the, the bread, you know, over the counter in addition to at the restaurant. Both businesses become very successful. What was the secret to such early and significant success?
2: Well, the success of the restaurant was clearly spawned by Mark and Nancy. They worked together at Michael's in Santa Monica, and then they opened Spago with Wolfgang Park. And so they were already fairly well known. I was not, certainly, but I was the managing partner, and I did the wine program because I thought nobody should get paid for that job. Uh, And then the bread was just so good and so unusual at the time that it really hit home, and the bakery grew way beyond what we have imagined uh and we moved several times and we kept the original bakery which was thrust 1200 square feet it became only a retail store but it was a great success and when we sold the bakery in 2001 we had 550 employees and sold in every state of the country and in mexico actually too and so that was great but then through the restaurant i also started making some what i call now project wines meaning wines that i made with other wineries for our restaurant that was the intention anyway and i made one in 1990 with brian Babcock, and then one with havens in 1992 and john albin in 93. and then after that i started to think boy i can do this myself like uh and i had to convince elaine because we didn't have any money and i thought I said, uh, look, Elaine, I'd like to make a few barrels of wine myself. And, uh, you know, if everything goes not well, I can make the waiter sell it in the restaurant anyway. <laughs> and, you know, the nice lady that she is, she said, oh, my God, go for it and I'll support you. And then we founded Nam- it in 1993 and made
1: the first wine in 94, but there was only four and a half barrels or something like that. You mentioned Elaine, and, and it's one of the common themes on this show is so many successful people who have had somebody with them, beside them, motivating them, giving them confidence. And that seems to be an important part of your success was Elaine's support when you decided to to start making wine when you really didn't have the means to to start a new project like that.
2: Yeah, no question about it at all. I mean, it's it's more than her support really i mean elaine has done everything in the winery that has to do especially in the early days i mean she i mean there was really the two of us and and two people that we hired and there was that but but uh you know she is even now to this day sort of my private critic, like I make a wine, I bring it home, I let her taste it and I, and I try to not let her know that it's my wine and then she says it good or not good or whatever and then I keep on working from that. But even now she works at the winery every single day. She runs all the office and all the exports and all of the the back office. Uh, stuff that needs to happen and I get to do what I want to do which is I'll just make the
1: wine and grow the vines you make your first wine and you decide to mail a bottle to the most famous important wine critic in the world Robert Parker with a handwritten note and he reviews it how did his review change your business and change your life
2: Well, you know, it's a funny experience altogether because I had no idea what was going to happen. It was a hobby to me, right? But I thought, oh, the wine is good. I'll send a bottle to him, and i just write him a note. And I didn't even know if he was ever going to taste it. But he did, and he called Elaine at home and said, oh, boy, that's really good. And he gave us 95 points ordered a case for himself, I couldn't even believe it. Like, it was unbelievable to me. I, and and from that point forward, he came to taste with us every single year. Now, of course, that in and of itself, just his good review and him calling and ordering the wine, had me even more inspired. And I said, we got to do something more. I bought more equipment. We built the wine, an old warehouse that Elaine found out and made a, a winery out of it and made wine there. For forever, we still own that place actually, uh, and may have now it's just a storage facility and and a shipping facility. But it was super fun; it was very exciting.
1: So you seem to have a kind of a sense for branding. I mean, you launched the wine. I think at the time, maybe only Mouton Rothschild and Kenwood put any art on their labels, but it wasn't the winemaker's art. And what you did is you not only put, you know, your own art on the label you changed the bottle design the name of the wine you know every year which kind of went against marketing convention back then which was yeah. you want to be able to recognize the bottle of wine either at the wine store or when the sommelier brings the bottle to the table you can glance over and say oh yeah that's it but you completely broke with tradition as well as you had a sense of exclusivity to your wine with you know small production and a mailing list and what have you was this In terms of building the success of your winery, was this thought through with your business brain, or was this just you being you and just authenticity and just what came naturally?
2: Well, it was definitely not my business brain, I can tell you that. I mean, in fact, everybody, when I said I'm going to make my own labels and I changed the labels, advised me against that because they said what you just said, are you insane? People should recognize your brand and know that that's what it is and not have it new every single time, but I sort of viewed it very much, like I said, from from the beginning, at least from a sort of hobby standpoint. And I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I always thought like nobody in my family has had Napoleon sleep. There were no anything about wine making. Nobody made wine. And so I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. And that's what struck my fancy. And I always liked to do artwork and I made linoleum cuts and wood cuts and drawings and photographs. And so that was fun for me to, for me to do. And obviously I was aware of Mouton, what they did with the art series. And there was a winery here called Kenwood that did something similar. But I wanted to do my own and I thought oh, I can force my Quote unquote artwork on people whether they want to or not and and that's what i did and and amazingly later on and now people think it was a very clever sort of marketing or business idea when everybody really advised me against that uh, on the very beginning but i did it anyway and i still do it to this day and 30 years later i make new labels every single year
1: so i love the kind of the confidence you showed Kind of right out of the the bat, your first newsletter for the 94 Queen of Spades. And I'll quote, we won't bore you with all the details of when, what happened, in what kind of oak, because we don't believe it adds to your enjoyment of the wine, but detracts. If you absolutely must know every date and number, let us know and we'll furnish what we can remember. And don't forget to let the Queen rest a bit after her trip to you. Think of how you might feel after a 30-hour bus trip. And each one of your notes still with, I don't know if you watched Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but he was very sarcastic whenever it came to anything commercial or about the commercials, which you do at the end of your letters. How important were these letters from you and Elaine to you in terms of the relationships that you built up with your customers?
2: In retrospect, I think they are very important because I think one thing that happened, and again, that wasn't super thought out really, but but over time, I figured it out that people liked a connection to a human being as opposed to a business. And so the way we wrote the letters, or I wrote the letters in a sort of goofy Austrian way did make a connection, I think, and made people realize that this is somebody who loves what they're doing and that's what we want to do. And you're buying from a human being as opposed to some business, per se, that's Mm -hmm. Anonymous, and all sorts of relationships develop through that.
1: We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, entrepreneur Manfred Crankle, discussing how to create a breakthrough brand. You can listen to our show worldwide on iHeart Radio or on your favorite podcast platform like Apple or Spotify. This is Dan Hesse, and this is the Mentors Radio. And now. Back to The Mentors,
0: where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with Manfred Crankle about innovating in the tradition-bound world of wine. So Manfred, it seems like you use a lot of traditional techniques in terms of it's just being work by hand, meticulous work, the way they did it a thousand years ago. But you're not bound by tradition your wine is anything but traditional. Why not follow tradition?
2: Well, for one thing, I've never been formally trained. So I approached this all from a very dilettantish ish way, uh, and I enjoy that portion of it. And so I just want to make what I want to make and how I want to make it. Now, obviously, I've had many trials and errors, and some of, them, some of the things that I tried failed, and some of them did not but I, I never got to it that way. And luckily I found success in the terms that, that people wanna buy my wine with the process that I use. And so I never saw any reason to change it. And uh, I enjoy that process. I like the white making wine, like you said, that more or less the way it was done a thousand years ago, except for now we have a forklift, but I enjoy that and that's what I do. And that's how I, I do it. I mean, it's sort of a miracle that I don't make Italian wines, frankly, because early on, that was my favorite, and that's what I I traveled the most
1: in Italy, but I ended up doing mostly Rhone wines. Apple had a hit TV series, fictional, called Drops of God, uh, and the main character, or at least one of the three main characters, was kind of the world's most famous wine critic, loosely based, I think, actually, on, on Robert Parker, but he names... In the show again which is fictional the 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 12 apostles which were the 12 greatest wines in the world 11 of the 12 are european one is not and it's yours so how does it feel to be part of pop culture
2: well it you know to this day then it feels pretty strange to me because i just never think about those things all that much even though Lots of people think I do think about that all the time, but really I don't. I do something that I enjoy doing. And luckily I managed to do that for some 29 years. And I have a wife that does it with me and helps me out and supports me uh, emotionally. And so that's that. Said, uh, but, but obviously I'm aware of some of the things like the show you just mentioned, and it's clearly pleasing to me and I'm happy that that happens. But I'm not, that's not why I'm doing it at at all. I'm just doing it for my own pleasure and my own way. And when people like you and many others buy my wine and drink my wine, I get amazing joy out of it. Amazing, actually.
1: This is Dan Hesse. You're listening to the Mentors Radio, and we are talking with Sinequanon's Manfred Crankle. So, Manfred, I want to know how you learn. Uh, you talked about when you came to the United States when you were working at the hotel, you'd stand in the corner and wouldn't talk very much because you were embarrassed by your Conan the Barbarian-like English. You didn't go to formal winemaking school. You weren't formally trained, yet your wine is, you know, one of the world's greats. Your art, you were never formally trained in art, yet, you know, it's one of the attractions of your wine, and your art is in demand. So you have these are just three examples of areas you've become you've become extremely proficient in but not from going to school and as an observer it seems you you work very hard at it I mean you practice you study you learn but you always in this being the mentors radio it seems like you find a mentor somebody to learn from almost on the job apprentice like is that is that a fair way of assessing your key to learning success
2: that is definitely a fair way to, to that's it. I mean, I've never, for some reason, wanted to go to school, and I didn't go to school enough. That's not what I'm recommending to others. I I wish I had gone to school more. But I learned better from other people and being inspired by other people, and I was inspired by many winemakers around the world, locally, certainly by John Alban uh, from Alban Vineyards, and by Adam Tomac from the OHA Vineyard, and of course, people even that I didn't become close friends with like Helen Turley, for example, or David Abreu. But I looked at them and I would visit them and talk to them. And in the early days, I think people thought I was just some sort of a sommelier. And so meaning not threatening or not a competitor. And so they told me a lot of stuff. And then I would try things out on a small scale and say, what does actually work and not work? And I've always worked that way. I really don't sort of hang out with with winemakers all that much uh, anymore. Now, of course, I read a lot of books and I read a lot of literature to sort of say, what do the quote-unquote experts say? And some of it is so, and some of it is not. But I've always managed to figure it out on, on my own. Same with artwork, really. Uh, I had a, the, one of the women that I met in Greece in the early days, her father was an architect. Uh, his name was Fred Rockland and he made wood cuts and he knew I was into art and he once showed me and he said, oh, it's easy. And then Elaine bought me wood carving tools that were Japanese and I started doing it. And uh, and I kept doing it more and more and more. And I made linoleum cuts and wood cuts and I simply it was therapeutic to me now i never went to school for that either i don't really know why it works but it somehow works at least it works for me and enough people i don't know appreciate it i guess or i think that it's cool, cool enough that
1: i keep on doing it so you're on top of the world you're living kind of the life you've designed for yourself and and elaine Um, kind of the life of your dreams, and about eight years ago, you have a very serious, almost fatal motorcycle accident. You're lying in bed month after month. What's going through your mind and how did that experience change you?
2: Uh, yeah, that's uh, that was definitely a rough experience. I, I've always been a motorcycle rider from the time I'm like 16 years old. And as I grew older and I had more money, I had a whole bunch of bikes, very fast ones, and I drove like an idiot uh, all over the place too fast. And on that day, I was driving alone, but I luckily met some a friend of mine by sheer coincidence. and. I don't know why i crashed i have no idea some people thought i had a stroke because it was a hot day but i fell and and i got hurt pretty badly and luckily this man found me and they called you know they called the ambulance and a helicopter flew me to l.a and then they had me in a coma for two weeks and then after that i had rehab for quite some time now Obviously, that was an extremely tough time, and 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 I'm not a good patient. It's <laughs> what I figure out because I'm impatient, uh, and and uh, luckily again, I had somebody like Elaine, who looked out for me. They they there was a time even where they thought they were going to take my left arm off. They literally wanted to amputate it, and she made a big deal and said, "No way, that's not going to happen." And it didn't happen. I still have my hand and but i still have th- physical therapy to this day years later and but i'm I'm generally okay and i can walk and work and do more or less everything i want to do but it was definitely a very rough time and i think what it did for me made me even more realize how special elaine is to me
1: by the way i understand there were also a couple of doctors there who were on the on mailing list and they took extra special care of you because they want to make sure they got you back into the vineyards. Is that is that true?
2: Yes, that is true. That is very true. And uh that it's actually super cool. They came even later came once to my house, the surgeons. And so because we knew them and because they liked my wines, I mean I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty sure they gave me extra good care because they really looked after me very, very well. You know, I'm still here and walking and not having any limbs lost. But it was clearly a very difficult time for Elaine because suddenly she was there alone, basically with, with our staff. Luckily, that has known what to do. But there was, and nobody knew what was going to happen to me at, at all. And I was in a wheelchair in the beginning and, and now I'm back to normal.
1: We'll be back in a few minutes hearing how one learns a new skill without school with our guest mentor, Manfred Crankle. This is Dan Hesse and this is The Mentors Radio. And
0: now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse and I'm talking with winemaking superstar Manfred Crankle about life-changing experiences. So getting back to learning, Manfred, you described kind of a traumatic experience when you were young, you were in school, you were asked to draw, I think it was Jesus in a boat fishing. You were actually too embarrassed to hand it in. You describe your work as an emaciated Martian riding a turd. So you obviously didn't have natural drawing ability or skill. You know, you weren't gifted because a lot of people think, oh, Manfred must be gifted in all these areas but it was something that uh, you know you weren't really worked at. And then after a while, it seems like you really began to find it therapeutic and you enjoyed doing it. When you think about learning how much of it is drive, how much of it is talent, how much of it is just love or passion, or do all of them have to be present?
2: Well, I think to some degree, all of them have to be present in some form, but I will say that drive and simply hard work, working at it is the most important. Even when you create a business like my wine business, for example, I kept telling young people that work with me sometimes all the time, like on the beginning, when you start something new, there's a lot of excitement from the newness. But of course, at some point that becomes a repetitiveness that is not so sexy and not so exciting. and, And you just have to stick with it and work hard all the time. To me, winemaking, for example, and really art too, uh, is sort of a mosaic of lots of little pieces that you've got to pick together and not treat either one of those little pieces, like they are little piece, they all have to matter and they have to be important. And you have to stick with it year in and year out and day in and day out. And I think that's how success is created. I really do.
1: This is Dan Hesse, you're listening to The Mentor's Radio, and we're with the successful builder of many businesses, Manfred Crankle. So Manfred, how do you define the word success?
2: Well, success to me is uh, obviously, to me, at least I have achieved it, meaning I've managed to do what I want to do, the way I want to do it, and for many, many years, So, for almost 30 years now, if I call the project once, it is 30 years. And I think that, to me, is what success is, to to have the freedom and the choices to do something that you want to do and enjoy to do and enjoy it for a long time and and, and stay with it and are able to stay with it because enough people agree with your the choices you make and the things you do. That, to me, is success.
1: And how do you define happiness?
2: Happiness is that on a personal level. And I have that too, so I'm a successful happy bugger because I also have, I live where I want to live, in the house I wanna live, in the town I want to live, with the person I wanna live. And I have a very loving, happy relationship and I have happy kids and a good relationship with my kids. And to me, that is happiness. in a snapshot and it has fairly little to do with money uh I mean obviously if you're completely poverty stricken then money starts to matter at some point but at a certain level it doesn't matter if you have twice as much or three times as much as it is what relationships you have and what you are able to do
1: so as an immigrant it seems Manfred that you appreciate America what the country stands for what we have here more than most Americans I know do. From your vantage point, growing up outside the United States and emigrating here really with with nothing and creating the life that you've created for yourself, what's so special about America?
2: Well, to me, America was always, even as a kid, I looked at it as this incredible place of simply opportunity. Opportunity doesn't mean you get what you want for free. But you can achieve something if you're willing to work at it, and nobody needs to check 18 different bureaucrats and get 16 stamps and 16, I don't know, whatever, some authorization. But you can achieve it if you want to. And I think, frankly, I am an example of that. And I bring that up often, even with my own kids, because obviously they grew up in... In good circumstances, in happy circumstances, and meant to go to college and, and all this stuff. But for me, America to this day, quite honestly, is a place where anybody can achieve something if you're willing to work hard enough at it. And I love that about the place to this day. And I I wouldn't like to live
1: any place else. We'll be back in a few minutes, learning about an immigrant's journey to success with Manfred Crankle. You'll find all of our show notes and links at TheMentorsRadio.com. For those who listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or on one of the many podcast platforms that carry our show, if you enjoy these conversations, please give us a good review and tell a friend. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now,
0: back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about
1: life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse and I'm with the builder of many successful businesses, Manfred Crankle, discussing success, happiness and other subjects. So Manfred, I'm one of those people who like everything I work on to turn out exactly as planned. But it seems you like surprises. You talk about when you do your art because you do a lot of wood cutting that you never yeah. really know what it's going to look like until you actually make that first print and pull the paper off the wood. Your winemaking, a lot of times when you taste it out of the barrel, it's a surprise. It's a little different than what you had expected. Why do you like surprise?
2: Oh, that's a very good question. I don't know. Even when we travel, like Elaine and I, we oftentimes book trips, even with the kids that we don't book anything for. Like we literally say, let's book a location and we show up and we have no hotel booked or no nothing booked because the surprises bring interesting things but they also bring interesting perspectives. And I enjoy that very, very much. Uh, And so, like you said, the winemaking is clearly one of them. The winemaking, no matter what you do, will never stay the same anyway. It's one of the reasons I do the labels and the different names and the different bottles, because no wine, even if you did exactly the same thing, will ever be the same and that's the beauty of it the beauty is that it doesn't stay the same that there's always a curveball there's always something new there's always something different and wood cutting is clearly that way too because what you're doing when you're making it you're you're removing things that are not going to be seen you're carving away stuff and then you ink it up and then you put a paper on top and you make a print and there's always a surprise in some form or another and sometimes the surprise is good and sometimes it's bad but you can't really fix it in the process you can't erase
1: it so you know we've talked before about you know whether it was after your accident when you don't have things you previously had you grew up without much money do you think you appreciate the life that you live more because you grew up without those things that you grew up poor probably uh I mean I don't think about it much anymore.
2: Although when I visit my mom, for example, which I did a few months ago, I do notice it and I do think about it and I think about my dad, who probably never made more than $2,000 a month in his entire life. Clearly I grew up poor is the way to put it. Now I don't say this in a sort of perverse arrogance, uh, but it is what it is. But my family was very strong and very happy and very supportive and 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 good to me. And so, but, but I, I was always aware that we didn't have any money and there was nothing, there was no luxury and certainly no fancy vacation, no fancy restaurants, no fancy travel. But everything else was very, very good and very positive. But I do think I'm aware of the fact that the life I have now, I would have never imagined in a thousand years uh, that I have the things I have and I can do the things I want to do.
1: So you're considered a real innovator what is innovation to you what does innovation mean to you and why do you believe you've been so innovative
2: i don't know i simply enjoy doing the things i want to do and the way i want to do them and and that's that and i sort of i've never been one i've never been a follower like that says oh so and so did that i'm gonna do that too Early on, when I made wine, I thought I was going to do some sort of reverse engineering. I visited all these wineries, and I thought I'm going to ask everybody some questions about do you ferment with stems or without or what barrels and this and that, and I thought I would find a common thread, and the only common thread I could find was that they all were super passionate about what they were doing and how they were doing it, and so I ended up doing that. I followed the notion that do your own thing and do it well enough and work hard enough at it that people will agree with you. And to me, I don't know, maybe that's what innovation is. uh, to Simply follow your own style and your own way of thinking. Now, obviously, there's a luxury in that if it works, because if it doesn't work, you can be innovative as much as you want, but you also need enough money to support that.
1: Kind of following up on innovation. And passion being a piece of it and kind of doing it your way. You sent me a CD of artists, you know, almost 10 years ago. You had Alabama Shakes, Jamestown Revival, Cat Power, Father John Misty, Yola Tango, people who I would say are innovative, different, but also I would say almost soulful. You tend to like kind of roots and folk music, very personal. Um, is that what attracts you to the music that you listen to? Because one other thing you've told me is that people who appreciate art, you know, the same people appreciate art, appreciate architecture, appreciate music, appreciate the artistic. Do I Is that a fair assessment?
2: Yes, that is a very fair assessment. I'm not so sure how accurate I am with that. I used to certainly think that if somebody can describe and find and evaluate all the nuances in a wine, because there's a million of them, then they clearly must have other senses that are strongly developed too. I'm not totally sure if that's true, but I think to a large degree, it is true. Like if you have a keen sense of your smell or your taste or your eyes or, or your ears, then I don't think that's singular that I, I don't think the other senses are sort of dull and narrow I think that it opens up everything and you view everything in a different way and I think that's what happened to me quite honestly uh
1: well so Manfred as uh as part of my painstaking research to do this interview Diane and I have been drinking Cinequin every night for the past week oh, <laughs> Yes, we have. It's, it's great. I've been going into my stash. It's been wonderful. But unlike kind of Galani and Dunnick, Brooks and Parati Brown, who use 100-point scores, you know, I'm a little simpler. I use a 10-point scale, but kind of using a musical reference, I would give your wines My Spinal Tap 11. To our listeners, please go to the mentorsradio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us on the major podcast platforms like Spotify, Apple, and Google, and on iHeartRadio Worldwide. Please join us next week for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. Thank you.
0: It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.thementorsradio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.